Welcome to Notes from Nash. This is Farouk Ramzan. And this is Evan Regan. Today we're talking about Oscar Wilde's essay, The Decay of Lying, and how life imitates art. Yeah, we're trying something new this time. We're kind of all over the place, but we're hoping that you can find a kernel of wisdom in the chaos that we concoct. So, have a good time. Final revelation is that lying... The telling of beautiful, untrue things is the proper aim of art. Yeah, so Oscar Wilde here is doing what he calls proposing a new theory of aesthetics. And the fundamental quality of that new theory of aesthetics is that lying is the function of art. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, what we're talking about today. What is the function of art? Yes. And in a way, lying in and of itself is art. Mm. Yes, and that's interesting. The great stories, um, as he says, the best stories come from untrueness. I mean, he hates realism. Right. right? He, he, he doesn't try to hide that. He hates sure. realism. Right. Yeah, he says at one point in the, in the essay uh, or in the paper, uh, art is like a mirror that's reflecting itself. Art is a thing in and of itself. That's, con- that's contradicting what uh, Stendhal, the realist uh, French liter, uh, novelist says uh, the novel is a mirror reflecting a dirty road, something along those lines. So mm-hmm. he's, he's taking that and turning it on its head and instead saying the point of art is not to reflect reality, but to reflect some supra-reality. Of course. And he says that, well, people are actually the ones who are reflecting the art and not art reflecting the people. We might be getting a little ahead of ourselves there. <laughs> he gets to the, the the famous quote later on, which which we'll talk about. Right. I, I, I do want to talk about, and maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I guess that'll be the theme of today, uh, about the fact that some of the best narratives are not about reality, but are of, like, representations of reality that are so far removed from reality itself. And uh, on page 14, he talks about, do you think that Greek art ever tells us what the Greek people were like? Do you believe that the Athenian women were like the stately, dignified figures of the Parthenon phrase or like those marvelous goddesses? I, I think that's interesting because if art is reality and reality is something that imitates, or what we call reality is something that imitates art, then there could be a case made for the Bible being true. That's a good point. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, we said about the... the, the knowing what the the Greeks are really like. I I thought it kind of funny. He said, in fact, the whole country of Japan is a pure invention. Yeah. Obviously at face value, that's, (laughs) it's a joke. But uh, what he, what he says with that is, is basically the same idea is that what most people, their idea of anything, it's, it's untrue. It's what art and uh, literature has given them. Mm. It's like we've coded reality with our projections. Yes. Which is, this is, again, theme of the day is getting ahead of ourselves, but if you think about our discussion we've had privately about film uh, film photography versus digital photography, digital photography is capturing reality as accurately as possible, while film photography is coding reality. There's different films, different, uh, different colors, tints to the films, and that's why we have Instagram filters, because reality itself isn't as interesting as it is when we put it over uh, a tint. Of course, and I think there's also the point to be made that reality itself is not how we see it. I mean, uh, this is one thing I've thought about for a while, is that 
Uh, if you think about your memories or your dreams, you don't see those things in pictures. You, you see those in small elements like colors or mm. smells or um, small pieces of it. Not the, whole, not the whole true picture. Right. We're not scientific creatures. We're not analyzing the world objectively and seeing the atoms. We're seeing the emotional baggage attached to certain things and the emotional associations related to them. Mm-hmm. So Daniel Kahneman, the Princeton psychologist, uh, he kind of talks about something called uh, thought associations, which is it stems from Freud. But essentially, uh, when you look at something, you're not just looking at it. You're also looking at other things that are related to it. And what we call thoughts coming out of, quote unquote, nowhere is just us bringing up those associations related to that, to that thing that we're looking at. So if you smell something, and you remember grandma, and then you also remember pumpkin pie because she baked pumpkin pie. And if you think of pumpkins, you'll think of uh, October of 2008 and et cetera, et cetera. This chain yes. of associations <laughs> keeps going down the line. So we're never looking at the thing that's in front of us. We're also looking at a rat's nest of associations. Of course. Uh, I think I've um, uh, noted that to you and that I've said that sometimes I, I feel as if I can, something very distant comes up when I remember something, right? a small thing will, will turn into a larger stream of memories or, or I can almost feel a whole season. You said October 2008. Right, right. Um, I think that's very true. Uh, I want to bring a quote that he said in about um, why we remember things that are more unreal versus things that are real. He says, um, the character in these plays talk on stage exactly as they would talk off of it. Mm. Uh, and then he goes to say, they do not succeed in producing, producing even that impression of reality at which they aim. So by, by having them talk exactly as real people talk, no one can relate to that because that stuff goes unnoticed. Mm-hmm. That, we don't associate the pure picture of reality with any memory. Right. I do want to jump back and find a certain quote that I think is very interesting. He says something along the lines of, Right. Consider the matter, it's on page uh, 12, consider the matter from a scientific or metaphysical point of view, and you will find that I am right. For what is nature? Nature is no great mother who has born us. She is our creation. It is in our brain that she quickens to life. Things are because we see them and what we see and how we see it depends on the arts that have influenced us. So here he's positing the last line, how we see it depends on the arts that have influenced us, is that the art that we consume influence how we act. So I, I'm not going to lie. The way I dress is partly because I watch a lot of Westerns. <laughs> like, that's literally why. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say that a lot of people who dress are also influenced by the content they consume on social media. Absolutely. It's 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 sense perception. We're getting data, and now we're imitating that. Yeah. So. I think I heard that described um, by uh, Pushkin as the tyrant fashion. Mm. It's uh, the art and the, and the style we consume forces uh, our, uh, our, our dressing choices, you know, that's, we, we want to be perceived a certain way, so we dress as uh, the art that we like. Right, yes. Uh, what you said about uh, nature and also the perception that we have uh, based on things that we see, uh, I really like the example he gave of, of the smog. Mm. That was fascinating is, is how the smog existed for years in London. And in fact, the smog was a terrible thing. The smog caused cough and disease, and it made it hard to see. But then the romanticist came along 
and he taught us to love the smog. <laughs> he taught us to love that uh, previously ugly thing. Mm-hmm. And then now people think it's so uh, romantic or quaint to have a fog-lined street at night. Right. And then if we're talking about the function of the artist for a while, the function of the artist is to point out things we're not necessarily noticing and putting them on a pedestal. So the reason why we love nature, we find so much beauty in nature is because the artist has told us to find it there. Mm. The, the poetry, the T.S. Eliot poems about the fog in London, the only reason why we find that beautiful, says Wilde, is because T.S. Eliot wrote about it. For sure. Although I'm not wholly convinced that uh, nature isn't beautiful in and of itself. I, mm. I think this is one part of uh, Wilde's argument that I found uh, myself not fully agreeing with. Okay. Um, because there's certain things about nature that I, that things I had not even seen before, and I see them, and I and I, I think of how beautiful they are, uh, and I, and I know that that you uh, you've expressed otherwise, um, in in our conversations. Right. Yeah. You know, I've climbed I think the second tallest mountain in Colorado, one of the biggest mountains in the United States, and while I stood at the top of the peak, I said I don't get it, <laughs> and my friends were baffled i mean this was like the most beautiful thing they had ever seen and for me it was it was i I just could not relate to it it was too massive it was too grandiose i just i guess i wasn't taught to love mountains Mm. because i've always consumed art that's taught me to love deserts and abandoned buildings and alleyways i've not read much or consumed much or been taught to love mountains so and maybe i'm a weird not case because I, most people do find mountains very beautiful, but I am not one. Yeah, and uh, when you mentioned about the grandioseness of seeing the view from a mountain, in a way that that vastness of information that you're perceiving with so much before you is a lot like someone trying to accurately reproduce reality. It's too much for you to appreciate. Mm. There's no one element that you can attach yourself to. Right. Yes, it's it's less manageable. But at the same time, I mean... And this, I think this, this is going to be weird, but I think I, this is the reason why I appreciate somebody like Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. um, who says, you know, beauty is actually found in the industrial. It's, it's interesting to me. That is unexpected. That is turning art on its head, but I'm getting ahead of myself. No, I mean, I completely agree about the, the industrial art. And um, I, I think we touched on a little bit with the film photography. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Some of your favorite subjects of, of your film photography is, is urban things, industrial things. Right. I, I think I remember you, you showed me a power line once, mm. and I thought I, I thought that was incredibly beautiful. Thank you. So uh, the big quote of the day. Go for it. Life imitates art far more than art imitates life. There it is. Yeah. It's a lot to manage. It is. I think it was kind of our theme for a lot of things that we saw. Uh, oh yeah, at least oh, last yeah. semester. It, it was so we uh, we brought it up so much that it basically became a joke. So now <laughs> that we're actually seriously talking about it, I, I I've reinvigorated my love for the idea. Of course, and <laughs> it's funny now that we used to joke about it, but then we in fact began to imitate the fact that life imitates art. Yeah, we'd uh, find <laughs> <laughs> we'd find ourselves doing things that imitated uh, imitated art or. Um, or imitated films or anything like that. Right. So do you want to talk about your experiences related to that? Yeah, I mean, I think when I, uh, before I, I came to, 
to Vanderbilt, uh, I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention of, of everyday beauty. Um, and uh, one of the things I discovered um, through, through various experiences that beauty was actually all around. Uh, and um, the other thing I experienced with that is that uh, I had put myself into certain scenarios when I was viewing these things. I, I, I wondered why I liked them or why I felt gravitated towards certain things. And I think it has a lot to do with the, uh, the art I idolized um, or the certain narratives that I, I found interesting. Mm. I, I can say for myself, like the idea that life imitates art is it's very abstract until you actually read Wild. And then when you read Wild, I think everybody can say they have experiences where they can agree with it, which yeah, is why Wild is very popular. Yeah. Uh, I remember um, I was asked one time to explain, what does life imitate art mean? And I struggled because we, we had used it all the time. You know, right. we'd see something, we go, huh, life imitates art. Yeah. But when I was actually asked to, to put it out loud, I, I, I didn't I didn't quite know what to say, because it, it really is an abstract concept that I feel like you can only see it or feel it. <laughs> I I agree until I read Wild, but right. And I think I I just want to get back to this because I think this is revolutionary. Wild posits that what is real is actually art, and what is trying what is real is art. Period. That is what's the most realist thing possible. And what life is trying to do is trying to use art as a form of expression. Mm -hmm. So the point of life is expression, he quotes Aristotle. The point of life is expression. For Nietzsche, the point of life is to garner power, and power for Nietzsche is expanding. But for Oscar Wilde, the point of life is expression. And I guess the Vanderbilt Humanities Department better get that quote and like plaster in every building because... <laughs> If the point of life is expression, then right, art is so fundamentally intrinsic to the human condition. So I want to talk about that. Well, of course, and uh, he hints at the fact that everyone has that inclination towards art, um, that everyone has uh, the inclination to, to imitate art, but everyone also, in a way, has that. I think he actually discusses this in, in the context of lying. Mm. Uh, everyone has the natural inclination towards lying, but we've suppressed it. I, and maybe I'm, this is interesting to me because I'm very interested in religion. So mm -hmm. if, if art is real, again, I don't want to beat it like a dead horse, but then could not the Bible and the, all the other religious traditions, works of art be real? I well, mean, they're not empirically real, but here's is a proof, here is a form of thinking about religion that poses it in a manner that is more real than anything else. Yeah, and I think Wilde would agree with you. I mean, he, he said that um, for, for churches, that I cannot conceive anything better for the culture of, a, culture of a country than the presence in it of a body of men whose duty it is to believe in the supernatural. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, very and, romantic. Uh, uh, I know you're more of a, of a, of a Nietzsche um, scholar <laughs> than right. I am, but uh, I seem to remember that part of his idea about um, the death of God and that sort of thing is, mm -hmm. is he, he had thought about um, what it meant for people to have supernatural the, the the lie as we call it mm -hmm. to not believe in anymore yeah i i'm a big fan of the old testament and i can tell you <laughs> that it doesn't try at all to represent reality it is bizarre and it is written with such a prose where even when it's not telling you something you're expecting like something's going to happen and you have to do a lot of reading in between the lines because there's so few lines i think that is amazing i think the function of art is best represented in the old testament yeah, and uh, 
if we look at something like uh, Genesis and Exodus, mm. um, which are the core of the Abrahamic, uh, especially Ju- Judaism and, and Christianity, mm. it gives an origin um, and, and it gives a, a uniqueness to the peoples. Um, and I think most people would agree, religious or not, that uh, the story of Genesis is an incredibly influential and uh, incredibly well-written story just for humanity. So I want to go back to the idea of life, the purpose of life being expression. How would you find your avenues of expression? I, I think just, just the way you think about life and the way you walk around and look at the world it can be a form of expression. Mm. I, I mean, if, if you didn't, it's, it's almost hard to not try to express yourself in what you do. Because I personally believe that everything we do is, is to an end of, of something that we're trying to be. We have some idea, um, you know, some, I'm going to use the quotes, art that can be anything uh, that we're trying to, uh, to go towards. Mm-hmm. So self-expression can come in, uh, how, you said how you dress, that's of course, and then the stereotypical ways, um, of forms of art like painting or music or photography. But it can also be um, how we choose to talk to people or the things that we're interested in or the things that we spend our time thinking about. Yeah, uh, Wild actually gives us like a couple examples. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to the idea of life imitating art. Not that everything we've talked about isn't related <laughs> to that, but uh, he gives us examples of people who are similar to characters in novels or plays, and then that fate ends out for them to be uncannily similar to the <laughs> characters in these plays and novels. And I don't know, there's something to that. There's something very interesting. It reminds me of serendipity, for one, which I think is, there's something going on with serendipity. I think is very interesting, even if it's a, you know, like some residue of like an empirical phenomena. I still think it's interesting because here's my experience. Uh, being in a, a city called Rosemary Beach once, I bought a book called Tenders of Night by Fitzgerald, and I opened the page. I was standing uh, uh, in the lawn, on the, in the front lawn of this beautiful town, absolutely beautiful, looks like Venice, and by the beach, and uh, the first word shows up is Rosemary. That's the girl's name, and there's a girl in front of me who's walking by, and her father calls out Rosemary. So there's like three levels of serendipity in this beautiful town with this beautiful book, and it was, I think that's something what Wilde is trying to point towards. Yes, um, he's trying to say that, well, for one, that that uh, life is going to follow the things that are are high in art. You know, the fact that you were in, in Rosemary Beach and, and so many things, uh, Rosemary, all lined up at once. Right. The other side of it is that people look to these things for guidance. People need them. Mm. Because uh, life is blank, as he would say. It's people need these things to go towards. People need a, a someone something to follow. We all follow narratives. And you've described yourself to follow a narrative. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, one thing I, I, I realized as um, I was working through, you know, thinking about maybe what I wanted to do for, for careers or what I wanted to study, um, is that I had experiences in my life or, um, or things that I had read about or seen, things like that that uh, I had unconsciously incorporated into my goal for what I wanted to be. I had a cert. I would say in a way I still do have a way of how I think my life is supposed to play out. 
and I do things that follow that end. Um, you know, I, I, I do activities that I think are supposed to be um, in line with that narrative. Yeah, I think the idea of narratives is very interesting. And Professor Robert Barsky, who was on the podcast not too long ago, he actually studied uh, neuroimaging of people reading narratives. Mm. Now, the, the conclusion of, of that study was uh, uh, conflicted, but that was something to do with experimental design. But I think the idea that uh, Barsky was trying to pursue is sound. There is some neurobiological truth to the fact that we're so intrinsically interested in narratives, not not only in just observing them, but manifesting them. And there has to be something there, or else stories like the Odyssey and Exodus and Genesis wouldn't be around for so long. I mean, they've outlived just about everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's like, biologically speaking, that's like the gene that never dies. I want to relate something to the idea of lying being the greatest stories. Uh, And it has to do with the fact that I strive towards more interesting stories. I think if I didn't want to strive towards interesting stories, I would probably not think about them and I would not want to strive towards certain things. But moments of great satisfaction have come from uh, having certain ideas or stories that I've realized that I'm now playing a part of Maybe I didn't consciously start them, but mm. I realize that I'm a part of this story now, and now I'm going to live the story out. Right. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make this story interesting. My uh, life's the story, for sure. I think what's even more interesting is when I'm working on a story or I'm making a movie, and there are moments where the actors who are involved see resemblances be- between the characters I've written, not for them. Mind you, I wrote the characters before I even picked the actors. Between the characters and themselves, they're so uncannily similar. Again, going back to serendipity. So I think Oscar Wilde might, maybe he's positing a new theory of aesthetics, but I think he's also making some sort of like woo-woo metaphysical claim <laughs> about like, like so, there's something going on here. Like everything seems normal, and then this thing comes up about meaningful serendipity, and I don't know what to make of it but I'll leave it at that. One quote that um, really stuck with me in this, it was on page four, and it was, the only real people are the people who never existed. Hmm. What do you make of that? Yeah, again, I think it goes back to his idea that what is real is actually art. And art is a thing in it of itself. It's like the Kantian uh, a priori thing, right? It's like numbers. Numbers exist independent of us. So does art. And so the only real people then are artistic, artistic manifestations and characters. So when, example, when the actors see hints of themselves in the characters, it's almost like they're becoming self-actualized. But that's, I don't know what that even means. What does self-actualized even mean? I don't know. Maybe that's going too far. On a broader scale, uh, to zoom out a bit, this may have some implications for, I think, our modern society. I think our modern society, more than ever, uh, is influenced by narratives, but people maybe aren't aware that they're influenced by narratives or maybe even try to suppress the fact that mm. they are influenced by art or they're trying to make their lives art. Mm. I was reading today um, Pushkin's uh, Eugene Onegin, 
Uh, and there's a scene where one of the characters goes to um, the titular character's uh, library and reads his books and the notes in his books and realizes that this character is nothing more than an amalgamation of various characters that he's read in his book. And uh, in this book, uh, Anegin is um, he's really a pretty bored guy. Mm. He likes to cr- make things that happen. He doesn't seem to have much of a long-term thing, but he, uh, he loves creating new events. Um, and a lot of that, I believe, comes from his superfluous excess in life. Um, and this was back then. And nowadays, a lot of people do live in um, relative excess. Some people have a lot of free time on their hands. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, no go on. Oh no! Um, really, I that just seems to me to point towards people are gonna look towards art and narratives to to put themselves in more than ever. I think that's almost a direct response, if maybe you're conscious of it or not, to what he says on page four. In point of fact, quote: In point of fact, what is interesting about people in good society is the mask that each of them wears not the reality that lies behind the mask, end quote. So in that example you're giving, it's almost like he's actually developed too many masks, so that's become un- unhelpful for him. But Wilde here is saying, actually, I like what when people act differently than what they actually are. Mm-hmm. I would agree with Wilde, and I actually wrote an article for The Hustler, which hasn't been published uh, for over a semester, but anyways, <laughs> where which starts off with the, uh, with the notion, a Nietzschean notion that um, wearing masks can be fun. It's why we like trick-or-treating when we were kids. It's why like we like dressing up to go into prom. It's why we like acting differently. It's, it's Telling stories, telling, telling jokes. Telling stories, t- manifesting different characters. It's, it's, uh, there's something to it, for sure. And uh, this is going to sound like funny wording, but I think lying can be a fun activity. And I'll, I'll caveat this later, because um, obviously that can be taken out of context. Yeah. But... Uh, me and my friend uh, quite enjoyed telling stories to people that were completely false. We weren't doing it for any personal gain. Uh, we weren't trying to get hired, and we weren't embellishing a resume. We're t- I'm well, talking. Now you won't. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I was. We would talk to people who worked in stores, or people we'd see on the street, or random, just random people, mm. um, and we would tell them stories about what who who the two of us were, mm. or. Uh, Know, what we were interested in and and it was fun because the people got joy from it they they love to hear about about these new things that didn't happen in their lives I mean they they, they were interested um, they laughed they smiled uh, they were they wanted to learn and we got our enjoyment out of it because we got to be different than our, ourselves for, for moments uh, we got to be something uh, at the the bounds of our imagination and I, those were Incredibly fulfilling, um, because it, it wasn't deceitful; mm. it was imaginative. People's lives can become very monotonous, and you provided a uh, a dab of absurdity and uh, creativity in their lives. I think for me, lying is manifested in uh, in dressing in different ways when I travel. So mm-hmm. when I'm in a different place, I dress very differently in a manner that marks me out and has people ask me questions. So. When I was in Rosemary Beach, like the sixth time I went there, I dressed up like what we thought was the locals, but I also had a film camera around my neck. So everywhere I walked, someone would ask me about the film camera. And then we eventually made it to a beach party. And 
one person thought I was an undercover cop there to disrupt the party. <laughs> uh, another person thought I was a filmmaker. Another person thought I was this and that. There were so many different things, and they were all absolutely intrigued. And that was interesting to me. I don't know. That's fun to me. That's very interesting. It is yeah. fun. Yeah. And I will caveat what I said. When I say lying, <laughs> I do mean, as you said, lying manifests itself. My lying manifests itself, where yours manifests itself as image. Yeah. I would say mine manifests itself as, as stories and, and imaginative uh, examples. <laughs> right. So to close, I wanted to bring back um, all this with lying um, and talking about people and what, we can, what your, your individual can do in the modern day. Wilde gives a plea at the end, um, and, and he, he asks people to start lying. <laughs> he asks them to, not, to lie not for, for political gain, for personal gain. He asks them to lie because it's fun, because that's what art is. Art's lying. Art is creating forms that don't exist or can't be perceived by our eyes, or smelled by our nose, or tasted by our mouth. It's attaching to some distant cosmic reality. And with that, you got any last words? We could all use a little lying in our life. Amen. Thank y'all for joining us for this messy journey. Uh, we'll be back at it as usual next week with my interview with Professor Brittany Ackerman and the science of the novel and the meaning of writing. I hope you can join.